just Jesus. You can have your steeple and hymn books. You can have your cool tennis shoes and cool haircuts and lights and rock and roll. Just give us Jesus. I'll roll with the people like that. Okay, I am in John 2. We're coming out of John 1, which is like arguably the highest and holiest bit of theology and ties the old and new all the way together. Um, but we're coming into John Jing. Uh, be scrolling, you might be in a paper, but uh, the first part of this is Jesus changing water into wine, and then the second part of it is Jesus cleansing and clearing the temple courts. Okay, so let me, let me set the table with something, um, and then we're going to read it, um, then we're going to... Uh, kind of expound upon it, and then we're going to go back and actually read it again with a little more detail, okay? You mean you read the Bible at your church? We do. We do. I don't care much what I have to say, but I'm real interested in what the Lord Jesus has to say. So that's, that's where we are. Um, so <clears throat> in this case, the Apostle John meant as he's unfurling Christian organizations. How do you think it would have gone over if we would have appeared before those organizations and said, hey, we've got a great idea, okay? We're going to get a thousand bottles of wine, and we're going to go over to UNCW, and we're going to throw a party. Now, now, come on, go there with me. Some of you are like, what? This guy's crazy. Oh, you have no idea. I am crazy for Jesus. But this is what Jesus does, is he comes and he wrecks the establishment so that he can actually build the real kingdom in your heart. Yeah? That's what this thing is all about. So Jesus comes, and then the, the, um, as we read this, it's about to change from this water to wine, this, this um, wedding celebration, into Jesus clearing the temple court. So what is Jesus doing um, Arguably, in both of these passages in chapter 2, is he is shaking the foundation of the religious establishment. You got it? So in the first passage, it's this, it's this, this wedding. In the second passage, he's going to clear the temple courts. We'll look at that next week. Now, let me... Um, oh, there's so much here. I hope we can get it all. One of the things that you'll hear me say a lot is um, Hebrew uh, parallelism uh, is one of the languages of heaven. Okay? Hebrew parallelism. What in the world? Okay, so here's Hebrew parallelism. Um, God does something or is doing something, and he brings everything back around, right? So you've got to understand God stands at the beginning of time, the end of time, and all through time at the same time. What? Okay, yes, that's God. So what is fascinating about this is Jesus launches his earthly ministry. He launches the church at a wedding ceremony, and then he judges the church. Now, those of you who know your Bible, what happens at the end of Revelation? Yeah, there's a big judgment, and there's a wedding ceremony. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Okay, let's read this, and then we'll dig a little bit deeper. I'm going to try to make no comments the first read. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, 
they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. They stayed there for a few days. Holy Spirit, would you graciously and gently probe and sift our hearts today. Lord, we remind ourselves that we are but clay and you are the potter, and we ask that you would shape us and form us and convict us and change us and then fill us. Oh, Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what I love about the Gospel of John is John is written, I would say, on, on two levels. Now, you got a quick recap here, but this is written when John is almost 100 years old. He's about to die. He's probably giving it um, verbally, and somebody else, probably John the Elder, is actually writing it down. And so John has had his entire life to like let the Holy Spirit sift and work through um, all of this, these experiences he had with Jesus. So when it comes time to write it down, he, he tells the story kind of at face value you, but there's always these deeper sort of meanings. And if you actually look at the very um, chapter, or excuse me, uh, verse 11, it says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. So, so the, John actually, all through the book of John, uses the word signs, whereas the other three gospel writers use the words, it's more like supernatural or miracles. And so what John is attempting to do is he's attempting to actually address the supernatural or the miracles, but then he's going to upgrade these things into signs. Like he's going he's gonna to take like this larger eternal sort of view and attempt to unpack why in the world is Jesus doing what he's doing. Okay? So that's, that's what we're going to look at this morning. So now, I already sort of mentioned Hebrew parallelism being uh, one of the languages of Jesus. It's fascinating that he would launch his ministry with a wedding, and he's going to conclude it with a wedding. I mean, absolutely beautiful. Um, let, me, let me give you a little example of this, because I think if you can latch on to it, you can, it's a spiritual truth you can actually assimilate into your own life. Um, Peter, the apostle Peter, um, when he disowned Jesus, who remembers where he was standing? Around a what? He was around a fire. So what would he have smelled? Smoke. What would he have felt? Heat of the fire. What would he have heard? Crackle of the fire. Peter is sifted. Peter fails. Peter sins. Peter falls apart, right? He's a raging mess. Maybe much like you and me. <clears throat> Where does Jesus reinstate Peter? Oh, around a fire. 
I've stood on the beach at Mensa Christi where Jesus started that fire and called Peter in from the boat. And so Peter walks up to his Lord, ashamed, embarrassed. I've betrayed you. I've, 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 I've failed. And what does Peter smell? Smoke. What does Peter hear? Crackle of the fire. What does Peter feel? Warmth. And it's this, this Hebrew parallelism where God just brings it all the way back around. And I've got great news for you. If you have dropped the ball or failed or missed it or whatever word you want to use, given time, the Lord Jesus in his beautiful sovereignty brings things back around because his heart is that all of us would experience the fullness of the infilling power of Christ Jesus. That's his heart. So this, this Hebrew parallelism of him launching his ministry at a wedding and then him concluding at a wedding when we actually, the Bride of Christ, the capital C Church, get married to him is absolutely beautiful to me. So go back also, his sanctifying work in me. What is an area that the Holy Spirit... You should really practice that. I would encourage you if you haven't done that. Somebody make a note of that. Okay. So, but I think we can use this as a facilitator of the natural and supernatural process of transformation. So let's, let's um, we'll park here for just a couple minutes, but what is in these six stone jars? Water. And what is that water used for? Purification. Okay, so what do they do with the water? They wash themselves. Are these cleanly? These are people that bitterness, are holding on to offenses, maybe our meanness, our unkindness, our impatience, our jealousy, our greed. But he wants to take all of that and, and transform all of that dirty water into the wine of Jesus. I mean, that's the powerful thing about this. You know, it's interesting because if you... Um, <laughs> If you talk, when I, sometimes when I counsel people, I'll sit with people and we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about their life, we're talking about something of their journey, and they'll say something like, yeah, I can't help it, it's just who I am. And I go, oh man. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Because we're crucified with Christ, so Jesus wants to take this dirty water of our brokenness and transform it into his blood, his wine. That's the point. So I think he used himself to Moses at the burning bush. Remember, he called himself the great I am. So when you go, um, it's just who I am. I can't change it. I want to go, no, 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 of course you can't change it. But you can lay who you are down at the cross, whatever that thing is, and God will transform that dirty, broken water into the wine of his spirit. That's what it's about. It's not about who you are. It's about who he is. And suddenly you have a group of people who lay, are laying down all their mess, and they're taking on the character and likeness and goodness and joy and hope and peace, and you fill in the blank of Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. The problem I think that we oftentimes get into is Jesus um, can't set us free from what we prefer or like. He can only set us free from what we're willing to call sin. You hear me? The power of the gospel in our lives is limited to those things which we will just acknowledge and go, man, I blew it. You know, something happened um, this week. This is funny. It's worth, worth telling. It's not in my notes, but it's worth telling. Um, I got ahead. Where's Monica Goza? There's Monica. So Monica is um, a dear friend. She's been on our lead team. She's the head of all these. Uh, she's been the head, uh, historically, of, of all the principals and assistant principals in New Hanover County. And she's the one working with us to lease Rolling Grace. Okay? 
And so our lead team has been meeting. There's so many moving parts. My little brain is like, just like, oh man, I'm, I'm like wrung out in my brain. And I go ahead um, and launch a sign that says we're going to Rolling Grace and an Instagram that says we're going to Rolling Grace and emails that go out to the church that say we're Rolling Grace. And I mean, everything is everywhere. We're going to Rolling Grace. And Monica calls and goes, Michael, we've not signed the contract. And you got to understand, Monica's got some chops. She goes, you cannot do this, Michael. <laughs> and guess what I had to do? Guess what I had to do? Yeah, I say, Monica, I totally blew it. I'm so sorry. Would you forgive me? Now, here's the point of this. It, we just you laugh at me, laugh at us, but stop taking yourself so seriously and start accessing the power of the kingdom of God in your lives. And when you fail, when you fall down, when you mess up, stand up, look the person in the eye and go, Tony, I messed up, man. Will you forgive me? Like just own that mess because it activates the finished work of the cross in your life. Like, I'm like, why don't people ask forgiveness of God and each other faster? Because the faster you ask, the faster the finished work and the resurrection of power of Jesus is activated in your life to transform your dirty water into his wine. That's good. Like, praise Jesus, that's good. I want to live there, not out of my dirty water. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So, you know, what's funny is uh, just as we, as we navigate this even natural and supernatural process of transformation in our own life, uh, what our younger generations are saying right now, you do you. Okay, now, there's something really good in that. So let's park on the good for just a second. Because the church has become stuffy and judgmental, and we're mean to people, and we're unkind to people, and we're bitter at people, and we don't welcome people that look different or sound different than us. I mean, the church sometimes looks so much not like Jesus, I'm embarrassed and can't believe it. I don't even want to tell people I'm a pastor. I tell them I'm a landscaper. I do? Oh, you're one of those people. You're a pastor. Now... The problem with you do you is it doesn't leave room for you to look at your life and go, man, I've got some sin in my life and I've got to deal with it. Lord Jesus, would you forgive me and would you apply the blood to this area? And to look at your spouse or your roommate or your sister or your brother or whoever it is and activate the finished work of the cross in your life. And instead, it creates this platform where everything goes. It's a danger. Okay, so... Instead of going, that's just the way I am, I've started going, that's the way I used to be. And when I see something else, I go, oh, that's the way I was yesterday. Lord Jesus, would you forgive me? So this is how, this is the process of transformation. So when you give your life to King Jesus, he comes in and he transforms that dirty water into wine. Uh, one time, it's finished, it's done, but then there's the daily sort of transformation that is happening, right? There's both. It's both and. I, it just is. And, and that's really what I'm sort of talking about right now. I mentioned, I think, last week or perhaps the week before, but a couple of verses that I even declare over my life most days is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. My dirty water doesn't exist anymore. Jesus now lives in me and through me. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. That old dirty water is gone, and the wine of the Holy Spirit is here. Come on, that's good news. I mean, that is like, what? This isn't like works or performance-based Christianity. No, no, no. This is transformational Christianity. This is where Jesus comes in and transforms what is to what he sees could be. I mean, oh, it's so good. 
Okay. All right, we've kind of set the table. Um, so, so now let's, let's dig back through this. Um, here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Now, third day. What, what's significant about third day? I know John wrote it like that for that reason. I just know it. I just know it. I can't prove it, but I, I just know it. All right. Um, Jesus' mother was there. Who's that? Mary. Okay. And Jesus and his disciples, I think he's got six at this moment. That's what the previous verses show us, had also been invited to the wedding. So um, I think a, a couple things that, that I want to point out here. First thing is um, Jesus is honoring marriage right here. Like Jesus goes um, to the party. Uh, the other thing I want to point out is um, Jesus goes to the party. Some of us Christians go, I can't go there. Jesus called us to be in the world, but not of the world. What's interesting is you look at a guy like John the Baptist, and Scripture says he didn't drink, so he didn't consume any alcohol. Jesus went to parties and obviously drank alcohol. So you can't make a rule or a law out of this. It's what has God called you uniquely to go do and be. But I think what's so important here is many Christians, the more we get sort of seeped or steeped in our Christianity, we become religious killjoys. You know what I'm saying? That's an old school word. Like, I don't want to be around that guy or that girl. So they're just like stuffy, holier than thou. Ugh. Right? Come on. You've felt that way around somebody. I know you have. I felt that way. I felt that way about me. That's right. We're going to get free. We are getting free. We're already free. That's who we used to be. Okay. But Jesus is invited to the party, which says to me, he was cool. So he and his disciples rolled in, and they're not killing the party. Nobody's changing anything they're doing. In fact, it even says here, um, the, the guests who've had too much to drink, there's a full-on party going on. And guess who's there? Let that wreck your paradigm of who Jesus is. Okay, other little thing that I think is so important here. What is it, um, the, the next verse, um, let's just go ahead and read it, uh, verse 2. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, okay, so a, a wedding in this day and age, a Jewish day and age, lasted like seven days. And like life was hard here, right? I mean, life's still hard. Life's still difficult. But at this point in time, life is even more difficult, I think, than it is in our modern society. And so a wedding was a time when any, everyone gave up working, and they gave up all the toil, and they came together, and they just enjoy themselves for a week. So to run out of wine was like such a, it was a social offense that could even result in this day and age in like um, a lawsuit. It was that serious. So now, okay, let's, let's go there just a little bit more. What is running out of wine to the people who are throwing the party? Embarrassment. embarrassment. Okay, I think that's exactly it. It's a social embarrassment. So Jesus, I want you to see something here because as we read the Bible, the whole idea of the Bible is you would get and you would understand the character of God, who he is here, because who he is there is the same as who he is here, and you begin to access his character, right? So if Jesus cares about social embarrassment... What's he care about in your life? Okay, like, just go there just another minute. 
Like we tend to think God is so distant and he doesn't care about things like that. Let me, let me make this just practical uh, a second. Um, let's say you've got a son or a daughter and you can't afford a new jacket. I would encourage you as a parent, you're going to have to put this in any paradigm you're sitting in, but I would encourage you as a parent, instead of sitting down and telling them, you can't ever have a jacket, we can't afford it, okay, tell them that, but then say, let's ask God that he'd give you a jacket. And then begin to sow faith into the hearts of your kids. So pray together. Pray together. Jesus, you give me a new jacket. Maybe even pray for the one you like. Why not? Teach them. And then what do you do? I, what I do is I'd get up and go to Goodwill. My favorite jacket came from Goodwill. Just telling you. But here's the thing. is like we, we defend and we protect and we, we, we refuse to engage our kids as they're young and coming up with an interactive relationship with Jesus instead of walking with them in some of the disappointments, in some of the things that hurt, in some of the things that don't look or feel like they wanted it to look or feel. And if you stay in the journey with them and encourage them to take the risk of discovery and beginning to get to know him, what you'll actually train your kids to do is not to obey a bunch of garbage religious rules, but to actually walk in a relationship with the king. I mean, that's powerful. That is so, that is what this thing is all about. So if Jesus cares about the social embarrassment of this family, does he care about what you're going through? Absolutely. Like take that character of God and apply it across the board in your life. He cares. He cares. And not only does he care, he does something about it. Let your lack, whatever that lack is, it might not be financial. We could put it in any different category. I know all sorts of kids who are young and they're wealthy and they don't have friends. You can't buy those. You know what I'm saying? So you sit with them and you go, let's pray together, son or daughter for friends. Pray. Like begin to, like if you as a person are not engaging Jesus in this relational way, in this journey, the messy journey, it's not a perfect journey, and then encouraging your kids to engage in that journey with you and helping them take that walk, you are missing it and you're going to raise little religious people instead of little relational people. And you can either at the end of the day become religious or you can become relational, but you're not going to be able to do both. Okay. Let's go to, I think we're in verse 3. I can't even remember. When the uh, wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, we'll, we'll go ahead and read verse 4 to a woman. Why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. So a couple things here. Um, <clears throat> I would guess, this is totally my sort of guess, but I, Joseph at this point, Jesus' um, stepfather, did he say Jesus had a stepfather? I did. Look it up. Okay, so Joseph, by this point, is dead. We don't know when or how he died, but he's not here. And I'm guessing that what Mary is demonstrating here is probably a tendency that she's developed over time, is when something happens, she doesn't have Joseph to look to, so who does she look to? Jesus. So she looks at Jesus and says, they have no more wine. So what's she telling him? Fix it. 
fix it. Now, it does say at the end of this chapter that this was the first of his signs. So I don't believe the things I've read that say Jesus did miracles as a child. I don't think that happened. I think this was truly because of verse uh, 11. I think this is the first of Jesus' signs and miracles. So now you get Jesus' response. He says, woman, why do you involve me? Now, woman sounds disrespectful, doesn't it? It's actually not. Um, it means like, dear lady. So he's like, dear lady, why are you? So that part is not a rebuke. Now, the second part's a rebuke. Dear lady, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And I would actually propose to you that Jesus is requiring that Mary make the transition from an overdependent mom to a believer. And I think Mary in this moment has this cataclysmic heart transition where she makes the transition and decides, okay, I am not going to be um, an overbearing or over, over something mother, and I'm going to release him, and I'm going to become a person, a believer, who is asking um, something of Jesus. And, and in fact, I would even propose that this, um, this interaction is a great model of how we pray, okay? So, um, Jesus, the wine's gone. Let's keep going. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, how does Mary respond? Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Might be one of the most powerful verses in this whole passage. Do whatever he tells you. So here's, here's how I think this can even be an indicator of how we as people are to pray. Go and ask God. What, what can I ask God for, Michael? What's in your heart? If you opened my five-year journal and you started looking at it, there'd be days where you'd go, man, he's like the holiest guy ever. And there'd be days you'd go, you ask God for what? And at the end of that, i go, Lord Jesus, if that's not your will, take the desire away. You see, you see how it becomes not about, it's not me-centric, but I'm acknowledging in this interaction with Jesus about what's really happening. So, so Mary, I think, successfully um, transitions from being his mom and really makes her request known. Well, they have no more wine, but then she responds and says sort of amen to her prayer with full obedience. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. But she leaves the outcome of the prayer with who? I think that's how we as believers are to pray. If you have a sick child, pray for healing. Just leave the results up to Jesus. If you need a job, pray for a job. If you need a roommate, pray for the roommate. If you need friends, pray for friends. If you, your marriage is falling apart, pray for healing in your marriage. And just pray and then leave it with him, but get up and ruthlessly obey. I mean, that thing where she looks at the servants and she issues a command. She was obviously something at this. She's probably somehow related to whoever was getting married. But she says, do whatever he tells you. I mean, what faith? So Mary's sort of obedient, or Mary's prayer is followed by implicit obedience. Um, it's amazing. That's how we should pray. Okay. Verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I think there's something that is important here that I'm going to say um, because Jesus is saying to Mary, you can no longer interact with me this way. Our relationship must begin to change. And if you remember, as Jesus hung on the cross, he actually looked at um, John, the beloved, and Mary, and he said, John, behold your mother. So the relationship between Mary and Jesus changes here. And if there's any theology that I think comes out of this, it's the truth that you cannot access Jesus by way of Mary. Because Jesus is saying, you can't do this, Mary. 
You cannot ask me to continue on as your, as your biological son. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 5, and I'm, man, it's late. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Just a couple thoughts here. Um, Jesus always rewards obedience. I mean, he rewards obedience. Fill it to the brim. And what they do, I mean, I don't know if they're, uh, Cana is a little bit away from the Sea of Galilee, but they're hiking to a well, they're hiking to a stream, they're hiking to the Sea of Galilee and coming back. This is a lengthy ordeal that's happening here, right? <clears throat> Fill the jars to the brim. Uh, I think it's also really important to note here that this miracle would not have happened without the cooperation of Mary and those servants. Okay, go there a second. This miraculous work of God would not have happened without the cooperation of Mary and all of those servants. Okay, verse 8. Then he told them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from. Now, where did it come from? Dirty wash water. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and you've done it last. Now, there's a whole other thing. We'd almost do another whole Sunday on this, but I want you to see something. Where does Jesus do his greatest work? Okay, let's unpack this a little bit further. Who was watching this miracle? Servants. And who else? Mary and the disciples. That's it. Was Jesus on the platform? The greatest work of Jesus is always done in the secret place where no one's looking and not on the platform. And when the church begins to make the platform, the primary place where Jesus works, you begin to miss the person in the presence of Jesus, and you're actually in danger of veering out of the, the, the centrality of Christ in the church. The platform uh, in front of people, if you study the way Jesus does miracles, he always does them um, behind the scenes. Now take a church today. If this happened to us today, we'd all go Instagram about it. We'd tweet about it. We'd be on TikTok about it. We would tell everybody. We'd get on the evening news. And what does Jesus do? Hiding in the back, working in hearts, working in minds. This is, um, th this is so... Jesus is so, the Son of Man came not to serve, but to, uh, not to be served, but to serve. Now, let's, let's just park here for just a second, because this is so powerful. Who, from Genesis to Revelation, exalts themselves? Satan. At times, the church. Satan, though. From Genesis to Revelation, who is always self-exalting? Satan. Who, from Genesis to Revelation, is always taking the lowest position and serving? Okay, you are never more like Satan than when you self-exalt, and you are never more like Jesus than when you self-make yourself low and serve. Now, let's make a couple of parallels here. And again, I said it earlier, I'm not throwing off on any group or church or person. I'm, I'm talking about the capital C Church. When... The platform becomes about self-exaltation, brand building, image bearing, 
You are never more like. Jesus goes, Lo, let me wash your feet. Let me do my miracles back here in the quietness where no one's looking. When a church makes the platform the thing, instead of the journey with Jesus in the secret place of the heart, your life and mine, they miss the boat. The church is missing the boat. And part of our call is actually to rattle this thing and go, wake up and come back into a deep, intimate, and authentic relationship with Jesus. The same's true in marriage. You're never more like Satan than when you self-exalt. You're never more like Jesus than when you serve. True with your roommates. It's true with your friends. It goes across the board. We could go on and on. It's true about parenting. If you refuse to discipline your kids because you want them to think you're cool, I know a lot of parents like that. That's self. Some of you need to take your kid's iPhone and throw it in a bucket of water. I have. I don't tell you to do something I haven't done. Okay. I want to end with two things. I realize we've gone a little over. When I was 16 and 17, um, I wanted to be a pastor more than anything. And um, I, was sa- I saved my money, and I flew to the largest church in the country for this big leadership summit that they did. And I couldn't afford to go to the church. I f- could afford to pay for the ticket, but I couldn't afford to go to the conference. And I asked if I could move tables at this conference and so I could sit in the main session. And these people were gracious, and they let me do it. Right? And one of the things that happened there was this sweet lady who I love her to death. She was well-meaning, still is. But she took me around, and she introduced me. This is the largest church in the country. Okay? She took me around and she introduced me as, oh, this is the young man who's going to be the next. And then she would name the senior pastor of that church. Now, for a 16 or 17-year-old kid, guess what that did? Man. Yeah. It was like, I'm going to be a little crass here, so forgive me. But it was a little like shooting heroin in my veins. Okay? And when you take church and you make church about self-exaltation, about brand development, about you, about anything that is other than the centrality of the cross of Christ, the person of Jesus, the resurrection power of Jesus, you, you, are, you are destroying the very thing Jesus came to establish and build. We cannot build the church on that. And I actually, that and a number of other things set me up for seven dark years in my early 20s. I'll share that story with you another time. But if I could go back, I would say to that sweet lady, could you have please said, Michael, God's got a call in your life. And I'm going to pray because people who are called are going to be sifted greatly and they're going to suffer greatly. And I'm going to pray that while you're sifted and while you suffer, that your faith won't fail you and that you come out the other side and you're not absolutely broken and destroyed by the time you get there and that you're able to walk with Jesus in such a way that you can impact the larger body of Christ around the world. That's what I wish she would have said to me. Let us be people that say that to our young people and teach each other, teach our kids, teach our churches, teach our families to be people that actually go low and serve, not self-exalt. If this ever becomes about me, you stand up and leave. Write it down. All right, let's tie this up with verse 10. 
hand out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is a prophetic statement linking the Mosaic Covenant with the new Messianic Covenant. And Jesus is now taking uh, the water of the Red Sea and transforming it into the water, the wine of the Promised Land. You hear me? This is the Jesus who is taking the dirty waters of our brokenness and transforming it into the wholeness of the new wine of the Promised Land. This is the God who takes the enemy of your soul and drowns it in the waters of the Red Sea to bring you into the freedom of the new wine of the promised land. This is the Jesus that takes the waters of the Old Testament Mosaic law and beats you up and shames you into performing and trying to do things better and right and transforms it into the freedom of the new covenant where the bondages are broken and you're able to live free in Christ Jesus. This is the Jesus who takes the dirty waters of your guilt, your habitual failure, our legalism and transforms it through Jesus into the wine of forgiveness and joyful obedience and hope and peace. This is the Jesus who will show up and transform everything in your life. The question is, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you question is, are we a people who will do whatever he tells us? Close your eyes. Stacy, I don't know if you're coming back up, but maybe you will. Let's do something different today. If you need prayer for anything, I'm not even going to ask what it is. But if you need prayer and you'd be courageous enough to say, I would love for somebody just to pray with me, knowing that we're not going to ask what it is, would you stick your hand up? All right, church, open your eyes and look around. I want you to lean forward and put your hand on somebody who's got a hand in the air. Keep them up a second. Anybody else want prayer? Anything? Got a kid problem? Got a marriage problem? You got a finance problem? Got a marriage problem? Come on. Just ask. This King Jesus, just ask. Let him take it from there. All right, you guys sitting around, some of you young guys, older guys, put your hand on somebody with their hand up. Yes, stand up. It's okay. You can make a mess. Push your chair. It's okay. Make a mess. I don't care. Come on. There's one back here. Somebody lay a hand on somebody. There's one on this back wall. Yep. Come on. We have somebody over here with Shane. Yep. Wes, will you put your hand on him? Yep. Somebody get Bob over here. Somebody else run over there and pray for Bob. Come on. This is family. It's messy. I've never seen a church do this. That's okay. That's okay. Anybody else want prayer for anything? Anybody? Your heart beating, you're like, man, I'd love a touch. I'd love to know if God's real. There's one right back there. Sweet little heart. Yeah, somebody pray for her. Somebody put a hand on her. Come on. That's great. Somebody get Cameron over here. Lord Jesus, we declare before the heavenlies that you're the God that takes the dirty water of our brokenness and you transform it into the wines of the new covenant, the freedom in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that on this day that you would break the bondage of performance-based religion that makes us judgmental, mean people. 
And Father, I pray you'd replace it with the wine of your spirit. Wine is given, according to the Old Testament, to make hearts joyful. And I'm convinced that you liken wine to being filled with the spirit so that we can be people who are full of joy. Father, I pray that joy would radiate in this house. I pray that the laughter of people who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus would radiate in this house, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray you'd raise up a group of people. I pray you'd raise up a church that says, give us Jesus and nothing else, just Jesus all the way, nothing before, nothing after, nothing in the middle, just Jesus. Father, I pray that this group of people would be a group of people who is willing to do whatever you tell us, no matter the cost. Father, I pray for every need that's been lifted up here today, whether it's health or finances or relational or mental or emotional, Father, disability, a healing, whatever it is, Lord, would you meet? Would you be the God who meets us and restores us and fills us and causes your face to shine upon us? As you go today, may you sense the gracious hand of God on your life. May you sense the warmth of his gaze. May you sense the infilling of his presence. May you sense a transition from the dirty water of the old covenant to the wine of the new. And may you recognize that this is the God who goes before you and comes behind you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm going to do something that our, I'm not supposed to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, if you'll stand up with me. There's kids back there who probably need to be picked up. I know some of you are going, it's lunchtime. I'm going to ask them to lead us in a song, but I'm also going to let us go. Okay? I'm going to stand up here and worship. If you need special prayer, there'll be some of us up here. But I want to honor our time, too. So I'm going to stand up here and worship. If you want to do the same, feel free. If you want to go get your kids, do that. But listen to me. This is the Jesus that's nothing like the Jesus you've ever known. Come on. He's so good. As you leave here today, drink the wine of his freedom and the infilling of his presence. Amen. Go in peace.